Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 63 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and like always, we are joined by Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Happy Wednesday to everybody out there. Yes, happy Wednesday. And um, we're going to dive right into it. And this week's issue was curated by Kelly Bodwin. And as always, with gracious help from the Our Weekly team members and contributors. So our first highlight today is giving us a really interesting take on leveraging the power of simulation and statistics to answer some really fun and engaging questions. So I've been doing statistics for quite a few years, and the way I view it is that I have this analytical toolbox that often leads us down some interesting problems to solve and perhaps ways to answer some logical, yet could be complicated questions with a quantitative mindset. Now, certainly in the realm of competitions, like in sports, which I follow a lot, analytics are playing a huge role in both the strategy and even fan interest and engagement. And in fact, in episode 58, we heard a little bit about the merging of another genre of sports, reality TV, in, in a fun story about MTV's The Challenge Show. But that's not the only game in town, of course. Now, while this is technically a drama, the recently launched Squid Games on Netflix blends a unique mix of survival horror and competition up a few notches where the contestants compete in difficult challenges just to survive. One of those challenges involved crossing a glass bridge with two choices at each step. One glass is sturdy enough to cross, while the other glass piece leads to certain death. Given the assortment of players and constraints, one might be curious just how many players will safely make it across and continue living to the next challenge. That question, among others, was investigated by John Halvidson, assistant professor at George Washington University, using a unique blend of simulation methodology and some highly performant R code. So given the dichotomous nature of the choice at hand for each player, John starts with a straightforward function to simulate the outcome of a single game of crossing this bridge, given the number of players and the number of steps needed to cross the bridge. The way John manages the infrastructure is one aspect catching my attention in this story because he decided to hold everything inside a data dot table, the data format made popular by the R package of the same name, which has many performance benefits over the built-in data dot frame structure in base R. In addition, John started quenching his curiosity by using the existing simulated data he generated and either aggregating it or summarizing it via visualization such as what place in line of the players leads to more likely survival, as well as how long a bridge should be extended to ensure the game has at least two survivors with reasonable probability. And in a demonstration of near real-time community feedback, John updated his analysis in this post to include a time limit for crossing the bridge to further mimic the show's situation in the particular episode. Now, I personally use the powerful techniques in simulation practically daily in my professional duties, so having John's post gives, to me, 
a realistic and accessible introduction to the value that simulations bring to gain insights into statistical phenomenons, and that's a huge win in my book. So, Mike, what caught your eye about this story? So I have not seen Squid Games yet, but I have heard a lot about it on Twitter. My wife saw it. She had some mixed reviews, so I got to get my Netflix game up a little bit <laughs> and check it out because I, I think then it might uh, then it might be great to actually watch this scene after reading this blog. I thought John um, articulated all of his points really, really well, and it, it sounds like in this game there was a gigantic advantage to going last or later. Because you could either, you know, A, follow the path of someone before you who was successful, or, or B, benefit from the mistakes, you know, the, the missing pains on the path that broke of those before you who fell to their death. Uh, so I really enjoy simulation as a tool. I don't think that there's enough uh, blogs written up about simulations, which is why I really enjoyed this one, because... Simulation really relates to uh, risk and uncertainty, which I, I think is something that a lot of industries, probably from pharma where you are, Eric, to, to finance where a lot of our clients are, um, they face a lot of risk and uncertainty. You know, not everything's just a point estimate. Um, you know, rarely is there only one possible outcome. So when I was first learning machine learning, I was like, you know, who, knew, who needs simulation anymore? Who needs resampling? Um, and then after I gained some more real world experience, you know, nowadays I find myself doing a little more probabilistic modeling, you know, like Monte Carlo simulation, like like John took up here and, and Bayesian approaches than ML. So I would definitely point, you know, data.table users towards this article. I had to give myself a little bit of a refresher on the data manipulation syntax from uh, that particular package. I know there's some awesome performance benefits. I was also thinking, I'll throw this out as a challenge to any listeners out there who want to overachieve, but it would be very cool to see someone recreate John's analysis using DT plier, which oh, is the right. package that allows you to write dplyr code, but it translates it to data.table code under the hood to get that performance boost. So I, I'm going to challenge that to somebody else. I'm secretly challenging it to myself, but I, I am making no promises about how soon I will get to that blog. That's a great idea. And what's nice is uh, John's laid out this code in a very succinct and, and accessible way, where it's, I would imagine that with some time and a little ingenuity, um, we, we could definitely make that happen. So community out there, let's see what you got. I mean, we see a lot of engagement with things like Tidy Tuesday. I also think it's great engagement when you see posts like this and put your own take on it. And I think that's a, that's a great idea. And this will, this will um, shock probably a lot of people. I actually don't have a Netflix account, so I've never seen this show either. But, you know, it sounds interesting, so maybe I'll fork up some dough and, and sign up to catch <laughs> this uh, very um, interesting premise of a show. So. <laughs> I'll definitely also probably put in there that there are some great ggplots interspersed within this blog yes. um, within the simulation code. So I think he does a really good job of visualizing um, some of this probabilistic simulation that he's doing. So that might be interesting to the listeners out there who are looking to kind of bridge any of their probabilistic modeling and Monte Carlo simulation uh, over to, you know, tangible, visual uh, ggplots. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a perfect segue into our next highlight. And so, Mike, why don't you take us into how ggplots supercharging 
the world of artistry in the world of art. Smooth transitions, Eric. That's what this podcast is all about. You know it. So, <laughs> so Megan Harris, uh, who's out of the University of Buffalo, she's a data integration specialist. She has an awesome personal website that she calls the Tidy Trekker, um, which really cool name, especially for those of us who love the Tidyverse and love R. Um, you know, her blog here is is some artistry work that she was doing, and it really demonstrates the versatility of ggplot. You know, there's a lot of people on Twitter. She shouted out a few in her blog post who are doing incredible work in the artistry space lately. It, it seems to be a hot topic on Twitter. So it, it's great to see this article make the cut this week. Some other examples, you know, that I've seen are um, Jacqueline Nolis's GGIRL package, where you can literally get a postcard sent to someone containing a ggplot physically on that postcard. It's like linked up to Stripe for, for payment, and it's all within a Shiny app using Colin Fay's brochure uh, package. Incredible stuff. So uh, the intersection of art and R it is a really cool space that I probably never saw coming. Um, I guess it's a testament to all the work that the Tidyverse team has done on ggplot, right? So... You know, one thing that I noted in her blog, she has a couple different examples of visuals that she's created and all of the code that she uses to create those visuals. And she talks you through the steps and her thought process. I'm someone who doesn't use a lot of trigonometry on a day-to-day -day basis, but I feel like a lot of trig functions can be employed specifically for creating beautiful ggplot art. Um, especially notable in her last piece of art in the in the blog, which is called the Rainbow Rose. You know, which she depicts kind of a, a rainbow of competing spirals in space on a dark background. Really incredible stuff, and it's very cool to see you know her, her mathematical code and her employment of you know sine, cosine, uh, different trigonometric functions under the hood there to output this beautiful piece of art. Um, I feel like I've also seen a lot of ggplot artists draw inspiration, interestingly enough, from accidents while yes. trying to develop a plot that wasn't intended at all to be art. I can't say that I've done that necessarily recently. I'm sure I've made accidents, but I, I, I don't think I got inspired by any of them. Or maybe that's just not how, how my brain works, unfortunately. But um, if you saw my stick figure hand drawings, you would probably argue that my ggplot couldn't possibly be be worse than that. So anywho, um, this is a really interesting space for me because it, it's something I haven't dove into at, at all. It feels like a little bit of the different side of the creative brain to me, which I really enjoy taking a, a look at. And all of her code is also available on GitHub repositories that she linked to in the blog. So very, very well done blog post. Yeah. Um, it's been a fascinating world to watch. And like you, I didn't see any inclinations of this coming. Although I do remember um, before the, the artistry movement really took off, you would see occasional Twitter posts of what we called accidental art. And I'll just say that my accidental art has never been as fun looking as what <laughs> happened to be. It would just be a mismatch of spaghetti plots when I forgot to do a time analysis correctly. And it was just over plotting. And it literally looked like my five-year-old just got the marker and went to town on it. <laughs> so it's, but it's, it's fascinating to see that no matter which 
of say the side of the brain that you feel most comfortable with for creating things, there's a way in R to, to appease your, your desires in different ways. Uh, my creativity is kind of mixing different components together and you may not necessarily see a visual of it other than maybe a cool shiny app, but um, with what Megan's done and what others like Danielle have done and Thomas Peterson, it's, it's a fascinating way to combine tech with traditional, what might be very uh, painstaking efforts of creating your own artwork. So it's um, something that, yeah, doesn't feel natural to me, at least at this point, then maybe that's what I'll do when I retire. I'll just make generative art and art. Who knows? Maybe just some unwind after a long career. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great idea. And I would also maybe add one last thing that, you know, I think a lot of this, this artistry takes advantage of probably the, the layering aspects of ggplot yes. and the ability to overlay multiple images onto the same 2D space. It makes for some, some really cool compilations of art and uh, maybe I'm going down a theme here, but I, I can't imagine having to do this in base R using the old plot functions. Thank goodness for, for ggplot. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I, I know some people can do some amazing things with base R plots. I'm just not one of them. I'm Neither am I. very comfortable with ggplot two and the tools it gives me and even things like plotly to an extent. Um, I, I'm spoiled. Let's put it that way. Um, Although I have heard about some uh, developers online that have even made their own JavaScript, you know, built plots without even using frameworks like D3. Like they coded it up all themselves. Mad respect to that, but there's just no way I can do that. <laughs> Same here. Use, use what's easy to start at least. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, well, as always, we have links to all these stories in the notes and rounding out um, our highlights today. Um, it kind of gets to a point I just alluded to a minute ago. Um, as we look at kind of the advent of new tech in the world in 2021, it's not just to perform things like data science with languages like R, but with the new technology available, we are now able to access and create infrastructure to house the data processing and to distribute it and share it to the world. And this is one of the things that I get excited about because it combines, at least personally, my two big passions, data science with R and Linux and open source. And while I'll never be a professional chef, but I feel like one sometimes when I'm able to mix and match combinations of using R and various clouds or analytics technology, and I have all these ingredients at my disposal, but the way I mix it together, that's where I get the creative juices flowing. And so I, as I was thinking about this many years ago, I was in this sort of situation where it was, I remember as if it was yesterday when Studio released the open source versions of Studio server and Shiny server. This blew me away. And of course, with a spare server here in the basement at that time, I threw Shiny Server on it. I created my first app and I was hooked ever since. And that led to me installing it onto the company servers. And eventually we, we got scaled up, as they say. Well, these days, like I said, in 2021, you don't need a beefy home server in the basement to play with this tech. 
you can now spin up this infrastructure on demand in easier ways than it's ever been in the past. And that's where Tan Ho, a data scientist and analyst, has been dedicating time on his recent regular R and Shiny live stream schedule to dive into a particular topic of actually spinning up your own open source version of Shiny server on Amazon Web Services or AWS. And now what I really like about this is that while I personally have been playing with Linux for more years than I probably care to admit, I know firsthand that when I first started out, how completely foreign the concepts looked to me of like installing server software, updating system libraries, managing user accounts. And I was not an infrastructure engineer. I'm sorry, not one now, but it took me a long time to learn all that. But what Tan was able to do in this stream is to go step-by-step step saying, okay, here's the app I created. How do I share it with the world? He went into Amazon, launched up an EC2 instance, which is basically their way of saying a virtual server, and went through his preferred workflow all in a GitHub readme to go show each step and what you can expect to see as output and how you check how things are working along the way. And not just seeing that entire process end then was fascinating, but it was also just as fascinating when he, like me, will often encounter hiccups along the way. Not everything goes smoothly. And in particular, when he was trying to deploy an app on this server that was using RM for package management, it didn't go smoothly the first time. But watching Tan's troubleshooting techniques, along with a couple pointers in the chat, um, you might know who was pointing that in a little bit, um, we were able to solve the problem and he was able to finish off his tutorial live, which is still um, big props to those that can do it live. It's not easy, um, but he was able to put this out there. And now to me, it makes these concepts more accessible to be able to take some excellent work that you've done, and in this case with Shiny, and share it with the world all controlling the stack on your own with the help of cloud services. So Mike, I know you're pretty fascinated by the world of infrastructure deployments as well. What were your thoughts about what Tan did here? I think it was awesome that Tan took the time to put this into a, a video. I, I think there's a lot of blogs posts as well that maybe will solve, solve part of the problem and show you how to solve part of the problem, but not do the end-to-end -end life cycle, and even better on top of that is Tan ran into some hiccups along the way and powered through them. And we've done some training in the past at my company, and you know some of the feedback that we've gotten has been, you know, the parts where you ran into a bug and you and I had to troubleshoot it were some of the most educational parts for the, the people watching um, because that's the real world. We've run into hiccups along the way and sometimes understanding the process for getting past them uh, is more valuable than just the knowledge of the right way to do it. Um, so th I think that this video is incredible if you have the time to watch it. It's a great walkthrough and, and again there's a lot of blogs that, that are and even videos that tackle part of the problem and the fact that he took the time to show kind of this whole end-to-end -end process of actually spinning up um, this shiny server and deploying an app on it is phenomenal. Um, I'll, I'll add a couple different resources out there, maybe give a couple other shout outs. Uh, I know we don't uh, 
I know we make a lot of money on this podcast, Eric, so we don't want to uh, give away too many yeah, free know, advertisements. Right? It's rolling in the um, dough, so man. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just shout out Docker in general, which uh, I, I think is a phenomenal tool if you're ready to take the next step to start deploying some of this stuff to, to look into. I think it's made our lives quite a bit easier. Um, Docker was available when I first started getting into some of this data engineering and app deployment stuff. I'm not sure if it was when you first were, were spinning up your own home server. So I can't imagine some of the extra hurdles that you had to go through uh, without you know, you being able to deploy a container. But uh, kudos to you for that. I've also seen some other awesome resources out there just about shiny deployment options. And I'll, I'll shout out Peter Solomos at, at Analithium. He's got a ton of great content on all of the different options that you have for deploying shiny apps and the pros and cons of them. I even followed one of his tutorials to deploy my company's internal shiny proxy site, which contains all of our paid subscription apps that we license to customers. That's um, great. So, yeah, it, it's some phenomenal resources. So I feel like, you know, being able to kind of take this next step into deployment and stand up something tangible can really separate a data scientist who's trying to stand out from the pack and, and get hired or get that next promotion, for example. You know, it's it's hard enough to get code working on our own laptop um, that sometimes if you haven't gone down th this path before, it feels like an impossible hurdle to get it running on another computer, like a cloud instance that we can't even see. Right. It's it's intimidating. But the more resources that are out there, like Tan's videos and Peter's blogs, um, hopefully the less intimidating it becomes for those who are just starting out here. Um, so I, I recently also saw a job posting for a shiny deployment engineer that, that came across my timeline the other day. And it was really inspiring to see that there's at least one organization out there that sort of understands that data science is a team sport because th this whole end-to-end -end process, you know, Tan showed it in a one-hour video, but in terms of, you know, actually standing this up inside your company, you know, dealing with all of the security and the firewalls and authentication that they might potentially have, scaling it up to, to thousands of users, um, you shouldn't feel like you have to be the unicorn who can necessarily do all of those things. Um, so uh, I think the especially shiny app development and deployment can be a great team sport for the organizations that are willing to invest in it. I would say that maybe to wrap, wrap up my side of it is that my advice to, to somebody who's kind of aspiring to start standing up a shiny server, I think there's a lot of folks who are starting to build their own local shiny apps and are getting interested in deployment. And if you're interested in doing this within your organization, you know, if your work hasn't done anything like this before, this stuff will likely blow them away. And you'll very likely be asked to keep running with it. You know, you'll, you'll create a ton of job security for yourself and a huge impact on your organization. But I would make sure that you also communicate to them that, that the goal should be to, to manage all of this as a team if they want to make sure that it has longevity and is successful. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I remember when I was spinning up those open source versions of our studio and Shiny, you know, I was hooked. I mean, it was very interesting to me. Like I said, it was combining my two passions at once. But <laughs> this thing started to escalate quite quickly. And that's when luckily I was already partnering with the IT group. And then we were able to see things through and bring it up to the to the next scale where it didn't have to be me wearing two hats all the time. But I think the skills you do learn and at least trying this stuff out 
can pay off in ways that you might not expect. And for me, it was also, it actually helped me build relationships with that group to show them that, hey, I'm willing to get a little bit in the weeds. I'm willing to try something that technically is outside my job description just as a learning exercise, but I want to bring you along and then learn from all of you to make myself better at it, but also make the organization um, feel better about it too. So that's great advice to make sure to think about the the team setting when you when you have that available and to certainly um, never be shy about expressing your desire to get maybe more resources if you see that it's going to be a big impact with what you're doing. So a lot of these things I've learned the hard way, but the tooling is out there to try this out and to hopefully bring meaningful change to wherever you're working at. Absolutely. And I have no doubt that Tan's video here will, will get a lot of views and eyeballs as the world continues to discover the, the impact that Shiny can have. Yeah. And I'll just say there's almost nothing Tan can't solve. Whenever he watches some of our streams like mine or others, he always solves at least one complicated issue or to take me five hours to solve. So he's just a, he's just a super, super guy, very brilliant and across many aspects of our development. So if you're not following his channel on Twitch, I highly recommend it. It's a great community that's really in budding up with learning out loud and really bringing ourselves along along the journey. It's 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 been fun. More on that probably in future episodes. <laughs> he is also everywhere on the R4DS Slack channel. Yes. He is answering everybody's questions, solving problems left and right. It's incredible. Yep. And that's where this idea of his office hour came from. He wanted to actually put visual video context around the answers that he was going to say. I know not everybody has the capability of doing that, but boy, it's a great learning opportunity when you can. So, yep. Yep. Tan doesn't get enough kudos, so I'm going to make sure he gets it on this podcast. <laughs> So as always, this issue has way more than just what we covered here. Another um, piece that got my attention was this great analysis of what is the most American of American films, because it was a great use of the GT and GT extra packages for the upcoming R Studio table contest that's about to conclude in a couple of weeks. Yeah, so I definitely wanted to point out the R Studio table contest. Uh, you have until November 15th to get your tables in. Uh, Eric, I don't know if you've ever done the, the shiny competition. I think that that one has been running for a few more years than the table contest. I think the table contest, the inaugural, might have just been last year for the first time. I think it kind of coincided with the GT package that came out um, just about at that same time. So very much looking forward to seeing what comes out of the Studio table contest. I think for, for maybe Eric and myself, you know, we do a lot of shiny development. So our, our brains are sort of cha- trained for interactivity. And this, uh, the table contest, you know, while things can still be interactive, it kind of forces you to think a little bit more statically and maybe more explicitly put exactly on the page the, the message that you're trying to convey in your table. So I will definitely be, I'm working on our submission, Catchbook submission for a uh, table uh, for this particular contest, that, which is going to coincide with, with our release that just came out of our uh, CRAN package, which is called Migrate for uh, seeing credit risk transition matrices across one risk state to another 
risk state. Uh, it doesn't just uh, apply to credit risk, but that, that package uh, has had a new release just come out recently. So we're going to try to coincide um, that package with our table submission to maybe make a cool little table here for the uh, 2021 contest. Sounds exciting. And um, I hope I get to throw my my head into the fray, so to speak. And I have my eyes on some fun uh, data sets that definitely don't get a lot of attention in the R kind of uh, social sphere. And probably combining that with one of my favorite packages for um, tables called Reactable. I've been able to do some cool stuff with that in my apps. And I got, I got some ideas. We'll see. No spoilers. We will, we will find out. <laughs> yes. I am sorry to the DT package, but when I discovered Reactable, I no longer use DT. Reactable it is incredible. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, there's, it's always great to have choice, but, um, yeah, once, once I saw certain features of it, it literally went into one of my most high profile apps at work, um, last year because I could do so much with it. So there is no shortage of packages that create tables in the R ecosystem where I would say even as of like six, seven years ago, making tables in R was basically X table or bust. Now it's way more, way more choices, way more ideas that you can put in real production that would have required some real ninja skills to pull off in the past. So um, get your creative juices flowing. There's always great things to learn by doing. And also I just enjoy seeing the entries come through and what we can learn um, from all that, much like the, the shiny contest that you mentioned earlier. All right. Well, we are probably going to wrap that up. Um, so Mike, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H Brook. Excellent. And I am on Twitter at the Rcast. The Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash rpodcast. And the YouTube channel is youtube.com slash shiny dev series. And of course, this very podcast is linked directly on the R Weekly homepage itself at rweekly.org. If you have any feedback, don't hesitate to reach out to Mike or myself. We love hearing from the audience. Um, so please keep the feedback coming. That's going to put a bow on episode 63. And we'll be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week.